வெல்கம் டு கிரியேட்டிங் வெல் த்ரூ பேசிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் பாட்காஸ்ட் இன் திஸ் ஷோ வி வில் டிஸ்கஸ் அபவுட் பெஸ்ட் அண்ட் ஒர்ஸ்ட் எக்ஸ்பீரியன்சஸ் அபவுட் பேசிவ் அண்ட் ஆக்டிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் அண்ட் ஐ எம் யுவர் ஹோஸ்ட் ராமகிருஷ்ணா லெஸ் பிகின் த ஷோ Today's our guest is Mark Maguire from Hearthfire Capital. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Rama. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Sure. And thank you very much. Yeah, please go ahead and share about your bio. Yeah, so I um, got started in the multifamily property management space and, um, you know, learned from the ground up what it takes to operate and you know, fix multifamily properties and how to run them. It was an education I don't wish to get again, but... Uh, it gave me my start and kind of got me into the real estate game as got from there to real estate uh, residential real estate sales and then from residential real estate sales i ended up just investing you know had a lot of we had good years the last 10 years or so so any excess cash i could invest i was investing so um found myself looking into the self storage space and really like the commercial asset classes because uh, you could control your values so um the, the more i was exposed to that the more i just really doubled down on it and you know just voraciously pursued it and uh now that's that's where i'm spending all my time in the self storage uh asset class great and how did you get into real estate because before you were moving to real estate you are you have four three generations in real estate but you tried different things but how did you find your passion yeah I lo- I was obsessed with the idea of getting paid and not having to go to work to be paid. The idea of passive income and the idea of receiving a check on a recurring basis without having to work for it, I just became infatuated with the idea. I, I when I first found out I'm, I couldn't believe it. And when I realized that real estate was a vehicle for that and that it was as far as I'd consider pretty low-hanging fruit, um really accessible vehicle, uh, it was just I just just jumped right in learned all i could learn and just pursued it very aggressively got it got it so and also you like success into property management so maintaining the interior and exterior of or renovations so would you uh, elaborate a little bit more about you no know, a full remodels what kind of approach you you followed and what are the some best practices and challenging experiences around that sure so with respect to the renovations you know i learned a lot about the the things to make sure you include in your contracts because um if you didn't have a complete scope of work that articulated down to the skew number um what your material costs you expect to be you know if you get engaged with contractors and you give them an ability to cut corners and you don't give very specific bulletproof language um the time that i was working through it i mean it was that that it's been my experience that they'll take the corners you give. So you really have to make sure you articulate very specifically your expectations the in, in both material but then also in timelines and then in um draws. So um when are you giving people the payments? Uh, some of the biggest issues that we encountered especially because a lot of the you know the renovations we were doing were in that dip in the market when the dip was really just starting to come back 2000 uh 10 11 12 we were doing heavy heavy capex cycles in some multifamily units and you know you had people who were robbing peter to pay paul with respect to taking deposits to go and order material for another job and then 
you know, if you gave them too much money up front and they order material for other jobs, they may not have had the material for your job. So you have to be really articulate in your contracts and very specific when you're going to give them money, when they get paid and you release a draw. And then also making sure that you stay on top of their work. Because like I said, you know, you give a contractor free reign to take advantage and, and you don't check up on them, cut corners where they can to try to maximize profit. A lot of times when people bid these jobs, you know, there's there's not a lot of real, I'm going to say specific bidding techniques that go into it. There's a lot of back of the napkin math. And sometimes as part of the job, there's more revealed in what's required to actually complete it. And then they're trying to figure out how do they make up for lost time because they didn't build enough slush or enough margin into their bid and they find themselves working for free. So just learn a lot about you know making sure you're very specific on the materials, the colors, the the the, uh, the grade of the material, the line, down all the way down to the SKU number, making sure you're airtight on your contract with respect to your timelines. And if you don't um, specify the timeline that you expect it to be done, make sure that there's teeth and there's some sort of a penalty to them. And then beyond that, just making sure that um, you're checking up on everybody and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing because give them an inch, it'll take a mile. Got it. And how often used to check? For the inspections, you know, it depends on the project, right? If you're doing a roof, they might knock a roof out in two or three days. Well, you're going to be there. You're going to want to be there, you know, in the morning, in the middle of the day. I mean, you may want to be there all day. In fact, you know, one thing with with a really large CapEx project, like a roof, you know, on a, on a large multifamily building, a roof could be, you know, $100,000. Well, you know, to pay someone to be a roof consultant um, or a building envelope specialist could be money really well spent. If it's going to cost them two or three thousand dollars to to be a consultant, I'd rather spend that two to three thousand dollars on that day to make sure the roof gets done correctly, rather than not have someone um, watching over it and then having to you know, kind of nurse the roof along the entire lifespan of the roof because it wasn't installed correctly. So it really all comes down to just you know, what's the project type that, that that's going on? Because the length of the project is going to be different with a different frequency in terms of checking in. Got it. So on average, what is the turnaround time and what is the typical budgets? Um, it really depends. I mean, you know, there was times when we, you know, had new gutters installed and they did the gutters, they had to rent off out and they're building us for the lift. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, if you're building us, building us for the lift, we're not paying for, you know, five days and you only used it for two. And then you, you built that in as fluff in the project. So, you know, turnaround time really depends on the specific job. Um, you know, if someone's doing a, uh, just a single unit renovation, it depends on the scope of work. I think it's hard to really give a, a hard and fast answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Then what is your current focus, Mark? Yeah, so my uh, current focus is self-storage. I migrated from multifamily to self-storage when I realized that uh, it was just really hard to find returns that made any sense in the, in the multifamily space, um, at least where, where I'm geographically located. So when it became time where people are chasing a farther, you know, a more and more compressed cap rate and, and the, the yields on these projects were just diminishing. It just, there was a point at which it made, I couldn't justify chasing that small of a yield and, and, and competing with that many people. I mean, everyone's just, you know, 
cutting each other off at the knees. And before you know it, no one's going to make any money. And then someone's going to be left holding the bag when the music stops. So I don't want to be the person without a chair when the music stopped and uh, decided, Hey, you know, where can I go to fish that might have a pond where there's less people fishing in it. So there's still opportunity and there's just less people who know how to operate or know how to know about the opportunity and how can I capitalize on that? So that's what storage became for me. Got it. And uh, what markets you're targeting? So what kind of returns we we can expect from the self-storage deals? Yeah. So um, just to qualify that question. So you're looking, when you say returns, can you define that for me? Yes. For investors. So what kind of uh, returns? uh, I mean, typical returns you're offering for your investors. Yeah. So typical returns that we'd be looking at with investors, um, you know, we're looking for, you know, anywhere 17% and above on an IRR level. Um, If we don't feel that we can really, um, you know, in our gut and in our mind, guarantee a 14 to 15, uh, we just don't really want to, we don't want to touch it. I mean, we run our sensitivity analyses and we look at, you know, increases in materials and, you know, kind of baking in a lower cap or excuse me, a higher cap rate upon exit. We bake in a, we bake in a, you know, lower rent growth assumptions, higher expense assumptions. If we feel that we can still get to, you know, 14 to 15% IRR, um, we'll move forward with the project. Got it. So what is your criteria for selecting a good self-storage unit? Um, You know, so the site criteria with respect to our our units, um, what we're looking for in terms of, you know, our model as we currently stand, we're looking for uh, value-add opportunities. And and value-add in the self-storage space is a little different than maybe it might be in multifamily. Uh, with multifamily, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to turn, traditionally you're going to turn kitchens and baths and, um, you know, you, you know, you may do a light reno, you may do a full gut. It depends on your scope. But with what we do on the self-storage side, a lot of times it's looking at markets where there's a good site economies of scale. So, you know, call it 35, 40,000 square feet currently with the ability to get over to 50 to 60,000 square feet minimum at the time of expansion. Uh, we want to look at places where there's low to no utility of technology. So self-storage is really pushing for uh, more and more electronic, you know, all electronic touchless rentals. So, you know, can we take a facility that doesn't currently have that functionality and that feature and implement it? We want to go and put our backend tech stack on it and give our ability to do our remote gate access and, um, you know, go through the process of, you know, setting up a website with a, a solid front end that integrates with our, our our property management system software on the back end. So we really spend a lot of time looking for opportunities where you know we can come in with that tech and then really just work on revenue management. And that's where you know there might be some of that in the multifamily space, but um, self storage there's more single site operators. So there's a lot of like sixty percent of the the actual inventory and self storage is owned by you know independent individual that might own one maybe two sites. So we're looking for those people who've been operating these facilities for a long time, have high occupancy, physical occupancy that just haven't really kept up with the market, and you know with a couple of tweaks we can really 
extend the ceiling on the rents at the facility. Got you. So, so basically you're trying uh, direct to sell uh, seller marketing? Um, you know, going direct to seller is definitely one of the things we try to do. You know, self-storage is a, is a really popular asset right now because of how well it's performed in both the financial downturn in 0809 and then in uh, COVID. And so self-storage never had any eviction moratoriums or rent ceilings. I mean, it was very much a free market and um, it performed really, really well. So you have a lot of banks that were uh, highly exposed to office and retail that are now looking to reposition some of their their portfolios to self-storage debt. Whereas before, some banks didn't even want to lend on self-storage. It was just this ugly duckling that everyone didn't wish to admit existed. It's kind of like mobile home parks. It was just not sexy. And it was, you know, kind of the lower classes of society needed self-storage. Now everybody needs self-storage. And millennials are actually by by age group, by generation, the largest user of self-storage, which is why we've seen such a high uh, occupancy across the country. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. And would you share any of your best investing experience so far, uh, either multifamily or self-storage? What would you say is my best investing experience so far? By that, you mean like a specific deal? Yeah. Specific deal or anything. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we closed on a portfolio with the, one of our, the first portfolio that we closed on is, I think has some real serious upside. We're doing really well in our revenue projections and we underwrote this and put this under contract right after COVID. And there was still uncertainty around what rates we're going to do and how things were going to be affected. And, um, you know, our underwriting relative to our, uh, our actuals, I mean, we're way ahead in our revenue categories In in our initial underwriting, we didn't have any expansion capabilities your expansion component, excuse me, baked into the actual performance. And I think our value on the out is going to be much higher than what we originally anticipated. So I think that might be the best one. I think that might have been my best one that I've done so far. Got it. And would you also share any of your challenging investing experience so far? Investing challenges. Well, I think a lot of times people think that, um, I mean, I guess maybe a little more, a little more, I must say broad, a little more relatable to the average person. Um, people think that real estate, when you invest and you put a tenant in there, it's passive. And everyone always likes to make a big deal. Oh, I got passive income. It's not nearly as passive as people think it is. There is a lot more responsibility and, and you know aggravation that comes with it. And that's why I got away from single family because I found that um, I didn't want the aggravation. I wanted the returns and I wanted to have my money be responsible. I wanted to keep moving. But I didn't want to sit there and get calls from tenants and you know people saying that their toilet clogged on a Sunday night at 9 p.m. and I need to get someone out here now because we can't take a shower. I, I, I don't want that. So I think a lot of people have a really, uh, especially with respect to all the podcasting that's gone on, I think people have a, a not jaded, but people have a, a false sense of what investing in real estate really is. And it's a lot of work and, and, and you're going to bang your head on a lot of walls, especially on your first one. But if you can power through that um, and you develop some systems for turnovers and lease up and you understand that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like this state of bliss you can hit. Or you just work with people who are working as seasoned operators on the commercial side and 
you write the check and you go back to work. Yeah, got it. So any one advice that have impact on you, Mark? One of the biggest things with respect to investing, especially as it comes into real estate, my grandfather always told me, Father Time heals all sins in real estate. And I never really understood that until you know, watching the last three years, if you were to buy, have bought a property, a single family, commercial, multifamily, industrial, it really doesn't matter what you bought unless it was a hotel because hotels have gone the, the opposite direction or office. But if you would have bought something in 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and you overpaid for it at the time, it looks like a screaming deal today. And so as long as you don't sell, panic sell, and you ride out the undulations of, of you know the, the value wave, your real estate's a good bet always. It's never not a good bet. And it pays for itself and you can re-leverage it to go and take the initial seed capital and redeploy someone else. So you just have to let time do its thing. And you just got to make sure you don't get caught when you're in that trough of the wave. Got it. And totally agree on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Any books that impacted your life and what way? Ah, man. What books? So uh, two books that I read that really changed the way that I did a lot of things were Profit First by uh, Mike Michalowicz and Rocket Fuel by Gino Wickman. I really liked both of those books and got a ton out of them. Profit First helps you to get a financial grip on your business and really right-size your operating expenses so that you have profit left over in your business. It reframes the you know, profit equation where you know, the general accounting is revenue minus expenses equals profit, where they say it should be revenue minus profit equals expenses. So you start with an expense target based upon your, your revenue that you're doing. Really found that to be valuable. And then Rocket Fuel was really helpful for me uh, understanding, you know, there's two kind of key skill sets that you need in a, in a really successful company. And you need someone who's kind of be the big thinker, big relationship manager, sell, sell people on the vision. But then you need someone who's going to take that vision and bring it from, you know, the, the, the stratosphere and land it in planet Earth where it's actually applicable. And, and, you know, you can chunk it down into roles and responsibilities and then manage those roles and responsibilities. And you need both of those to have a company that really does something great. If you have one or the other, you know, you'll be stifled either in your top line or you'll be stifled in, in your execution. Yeah, totally makes sense. How are you giving back to community, Mark? Yeah, so what I do, I, I actually, I run a real estate group that um, is a bunch of younger folks that are looking to buy their first deal. Um, and I teach, you know, the single family component. But then I also try to teach through the financing, teach through the title, teach through, you know, looking at things beyond just single family and understanding how, um, you know, you, you transition from single to commercial and give people the tools and the knowledge to um, take what they weren't taught in schools and in their homes with their families and, and use it to build financial freedom. Awesome. Uh, how can listeners can connect with you, Mark? Uh, yeah. Best way to connect with me is um, investingwithmark.com. Um, that is our, that's takes you to our our webpage, you can just sign up there to schedule a meeting. I'd be happy to chat. Cool. And thank you, Mark. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for adding value to the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Rama. Thank you. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message. Info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. 
Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.